Have you ever taken a spin class? You go to the gym and you jump on an exercise bike. Then you watch a video that creates the illusion that you're rolling along a rocky coastline or maybe through a New England countryside. When you go uphill, you shift into a higher gear that creates resistance. It's called pushing. When you go downhill, you shift into a lower gear to reduce resistance. It's called spinning. Pushing works the legs, whereas spinning works the cardio. It's good exercise. You should try it. But here's what you learn about riding a bike. It's all about shifting gears. And so is the Christian life. Under the law, you perform in high gear. There's pressure. You're pushing. You're working to be righteous. But a Christian shifts into the grace gear. For the Christian life is spinning. The pressure to push is off. See, Jesus pushed up a hill called Calvary. On the cross, he paid the price, and he did the work. Now we leave Calvary downhill. Calvary provides its own momentum. We trust in Jesus. Now it's all about cardio, keeping our hearts toward him. Both law and grace take effort, but of a different sort. Law is a grind. Grace is a breeze. And the key to success is shifting gears from law to grace from works to faith, from the flesh to the spirit. And that's what Paul discusses here in these two chapters, Galatians chapters 3 and 4. We begin on an ominous note, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, the Greek word translated foolish means empty-headed. Literally, you airheads, you space cadets. Here are a few other translations of verse 1. The New English Bible reads, you stupid Galatians. The Amplified Version puts it, Oh, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. The Amplified Version always lives up to its name, doesn't it? My favorite rendering is the Phillips translation, You dear idiots. (laughs) This was not naivety on their part. It was stupidity. You see, the Galatians had made some very foolish decisions. Paul continues, Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This was not a situation where the Galatians had been improperly taught. The sufficiency of the cross was clearly portrayed. Faith in Jesus was all that they needed to be right with God. So why the confusion? Paul asks, who has bewitched you? It's as if the legalist had come in and cast some kind of spell. Realize legalism is seductive. It strikes a chord in our fallen thinking. See, everything around us says that it's our performance that matters. We hear it from our parents growing up, our teachers, our coaches, our bosses. Just do it is the Nike slogan. This is certainly the way way of the world. The whole notion that we can do something to earn God's favor plays into our pride. It can bewitch us. Christianity's message, on the other hand, liberates us. 
It isn't just do it, but the work is done, and you can't add to it. The real gospel humbles us and requires repentance, so you can't buy or barter for a gift that's free. In verse 2, Paul asks, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The Holy Spirit's given to believers, not achievers. It's by faith that we receive from God. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The Galatians had gotten off to a great start. By grace through faith, the Spirit was alive in them. Joy and victory flowed in their lives, not because of their elbow grease, but something supernatural was happening. And yet they failed to shift gears. Rather than spinning in faith, they geared back under the law and they started pushing again. Some people want to be a muscle rather than a vessel. See, a muscle flexes and forces. It shows off its strength. It's all about me. But a vessel occupied by the Holy Spirit is all about God. It's about His power. See, this is the flesh versus the Spirit. Realize the flesh is me. And not just the evil in me, but my goodness, my righteousness, my energy, my ingenuity. It's all my flesh. After we're saved, though, we should say goodbye to my And we should rely on the Spirit to grow us and make us fruitful. Under the law, we conform to an outside standard. We fit a mold. We follow a formula. But under grace, God's Spirit transforms us. The Holy Spirit changes a Christian from the inside out. From the law to Calvary, it was an uphill ride. It was a lot of pushing. But post-Calvary, it's now downhill. The power of what Jesus achieved creates some steam. It's no longer grinding, but coasting. The Spirit empowers us. But to take advantage of the change in terrain, you've got to shift gears. Again, in business, in sports, in education, the emphasis is on performance. Grit and grades and very little grace. But that's not the way we function as Christians. It's now all about faith and grace And God's Spirit. And Paul's argument is if you begin in the Spirit, don't try to progress in the flesh. Keep it in the grace gear. Paul asks another question. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? When they received God's grace, they came under attack from legalistic Jews. They paid a price to embrace grace. Now, if they capitulate to the pressure and revert back, their initial sacrifices will have been wasted. He says in verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You remember when Paul healed the lame man in Lystra, that is in Galatia. He didn't chalk it up to his outstanding prayer life or to his impeccable purity. Not at all. He credited the miracle to God's grace. It was undeserved favor. It was unmerited love. Miracles and healing from God aren't doled out on the basis of merit. They don't go to the goodest. When God works a miracle, it's always due to His grace. 
If people play a part, it's the faith that they possess. I love what Mark Twain once said. Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. (laughs) Got a good joke for you. Did you hear about the patriarch Abraham wanting to upgrade his computer? Well, his young son Isaac, he told him, he said, Pop, I hate to burst your bubble, but you can't really run the new operating system on your old hard drive. You don't have enough memory. But Abraham, that great man of faith, was unfazed. He replied calmly, don't worry, God will provide the ram. (laughs) You know, when I recall the story of Abraham, I think, in a day of breakthrough wizardry and computer chip technology, what could we possibly learn from a man who lived 4,000 years ago? And the answer is plenty. For though the world has changed and knowledge has increased, God stays the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the terms by which men relate to God are the same today as they were in the days of Abraham. And Paul is about to prove it. Chapter 3, verse 6 quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. For just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Paul points out that centuries before God delivered the law to Moses, even 17 years before Abraham was circumcised, God declared Abraham right in his sight. And why? Because he believed in God's promise of salvation. This means what God did in saving and favoring the Galatians wasn't new. It had always been by faith. This is his conclusion in verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. In other words, God saves everyone just as he did Abraham by faith. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the law. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, the Jews treated the law of Moses like a spiritual smorgasbord. They picked the laws that were convenient for them to keep. But here Paul tells the Galatians that if you live by any of the law, then you need to keep the whole enchilada. And everyone fails and falters at some point. He says, but that no one is justified by the law in sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by what? By faith. If salvation came by the law, why did the Old Testament prescribe a different remedy? Here Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. This verse is actually quoted three times in the New Testament And each time, the emphasis is on a different word. In Romans 1, verse 17, the focus is on just. We're made just or right with God by faith. In Hebrews 10, verse 38, the stress is on faith, that we've got to continue in our faith. But here in Galatians 3, verse 11, the thrust is on the word live. We're not just saved by faith, but as Christians, we should live by faith. 
Rather than push to earn God's favor, we need to learn to shift gears. Verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. In other words, it's either law or faith. It's toil or trust. On a bicycle, you can't push and spin simultaneously. It's one gear at a time. And the same is true in our relating to God. You either trust in your work for him or you trust in his work for you. Verse 13 sums up Paul's case for grace. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, and here he quotes Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. According to the law, the worst disgrace was to die on a tree. And it was on a dead tree, a wooden cross, that Jesus died to atone for that disgrace and to bring God's grace to you and me. The cross ensured that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessings of Abraham, that is membership in God's family, is conveyed not by our obedience to the law, but by Jesus' obedience on the cross. Even the blessings of the Spirit are received by faith. And the rest of chapter 3 is a commentary on God's covenant with Abraham. Now, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, cut a deal. Ever heard that phrase? But I bet you didn't know its origins. In ancient times, when covenants were sealed, animals were sacrificed. And then they were cut in cross sections from head to toe, vertically, through the animal. The pieces were then aligned in a corridor so that both parties would then come and walk together through the animal halves, committing to their side of the contract. Well, after God had promised to bless Abraham, he too prepared to finalize the covenant. He sacrificed the animals. He cut them in halves and made the quarter. And he waited all day for God to come and walk with him through the animal parts to ratify the deal. In fact, Abraham almost dozed off when God appeared to him as a burning torch and as a smoking oven. As later in the wilderness, the fire by day and the cloud by night. But God's presence walked through the carcasses all by himself. See, this wasn't a tag team effort. This wasn't some joint venture. This wasn't God's part and Abraham's part. No, God walked through the corridor all by himself. The work was God's alone. All Abraham did was wake up and believe. And 4,000 years later, this is still the way that God reconciles and saves people. Jesus has accomplished all the work for us. Our part is to simply look on with faith and believe. It's all about simple faith. Well, Paul begins to draw some lessons from this Abrahamic covenant in verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. He's saying if human beings take their promises seriously, how much more will God be faithful to his covenant? 
Here's another point he makes. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. In Genesis 22 verse 18, God said to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the world shall be blessed. You know, Paul read that and he saw huge theological significance in an absent S. God's covenant with Abraham's family wasn't to seeds, plural, but to a seed, singular. The ultimate heir of the covenant wasn't the nation that would come from Abraham's loins, but to a single descendant, a man named Jesus. See, the Jews thought that they were God's salvation to the world. But it wasn't the Jews. It was a Jew. His name was Jesus. Realize, the world's philosophy is pluralism. But God's philosophy is singularism. Our hope of salvation is singular. It's found in just one person. There are not many ways to God. There's only one way to God. And that's through Jesus, through the seed. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. This faith grace covenant that God made with Abraham was firmly entrenched, Paul says, long before the law came along. The Mosaic Law was never intended to take the place of grace, not even for a brief season. He says, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Law and grace, faith and works. They're mutually exclusive. Again, you can't ride in the same gear at the same time. you got to shift gears. You know, it makes you wonder why God even gave the law. Well, Paul anticipates that question in verse 19. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? And here's his answer. It was added because of transgressions. See, how do you know you're driving too fast? You see the sign. You have to see the sign. The sign that's posted there lets you know. The law exposed our sin. It showed that we were rebellious. But it was never intended to expunge that sin. In fact, the law was needed only till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. See, the Jewish law exposed our sin and our need for a Savior. But once Jesus took over, it was no longer necessary. Recently, I ran across some laws that are still on the legal dockets, though their purpose is now obsolete. Did you know that in San Jose, California, sleeping in your neighbor's outhouse without permission is a violation of the law? You're in San Francisco, San Jose. You need to remember that. Did you know that eating peanuts in church is illegal in Massachusetts? It's on the books. In Atlanta, smelly people aren't allowed on streetcars. Some of you guys need to stay off of streetcars now. May get in trouble. And in North Carolina, singing out of tune is prohibited. I would be in big trouble if I lived in North Carolina. Trust me. But here's my point. It's possible to have laws on the book that are interesting, but practically they're obsolete. And this is what Paul says about the Mosaic Law. 
After the work of Jesus, the law became unnecessary. Oh, the commandments are still on the books. And certainly there are lessons we can learn from them that are important. But when you embrace the Savior, those laws are no longer enforceable. Verse 19 makes another point about the Jewish law. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. The Old Testament law was conveyed secondhand. It came from God to Moses through angelic intermediaries. In contrast, verse 20 says that now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. The law leaned on mediators, but recall the covenant God made with Abraham. When God walked through the animal parts, he did it completely by himself. There were no go-betweens. God's promise, grace and faith, is firsthand. It puts us in touch with God personally. This is why it's better than the law. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. The law serves several purposes. It's just making us right with God was not as objective. He says, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. If the law could have saved someone, then it would have spared Jesus the cross. But it couldn't. That's why Jesus had to die. He says, but the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law confirmed our inability to save ourselves and proved our need for a Savior. And then he says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. See, the law helped keep our noses clean. You know, it taught us right from wrong, kept us out of trouble, until the time came for Jesus to save us and give us new life. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The law was like a nanny that helped raise God's kids. But when the child came of age, the nanny was no longer needed. And this is the case with Christians. A spiritually mature believer no longer needs to be told what's right and what's wrong. What's right becomes his utmost desire. Now that we know Jesus, our heart changes. I no longer have to obey God. I now want to obey God. Hey, I get to obey God. It's been said when we come to Christ, our want to's change. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For the Christian, the Savior's nature beats in our breast as loudly as our own heart. We are miracles of God's grace. How can we add to what Jesus has already done? We need to rely and rest on his finished work. Which leads to a great truth. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We could add there is neither black nor white. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Since salvation is no longer based on our own achievements, then the categories that used to define us are now abolished. We're all one in Christ. All that distinguishes us now 
is whether we're in Christ or we're apart from Christ. Verse 29 tells us, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Membership in Abraham's family no longer requires a Jewish pedigree. We can leapfrog that requirement by embracing Abraham's heir, Jesus Christ. You know, it's not what you do, it's who you know. I'm accepted by faith in Jesus. Now, the first seven verses of chapter 4 continue this analogy of the law as a nanny or as a tutor. See, in the Roman world, before a son came of age, he was under the care of a nanny, sort of like a male Mary Poppins, or a mentor, sort of like Mr. Miyagi in the movie Karate Kid. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. See, the son was heir to the family fortune, but in his younger years, he was treated like a hired hand. Until he developed some maturity, he couldn't be trusted. In short, he had to learn the ropes before he was given the reins. And this is the background leading into Galatians chapter 4. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. See, a wise dad expects his son to work in the family business before he takes it over. A future employer should first be an employee. You know, employees learn many important lessons. An employee gets graded on results. He gets groomed by routine. He gets guided by regulations. He gets guarded from his recklessness. And this is vital training. For after the son becomes the owner, there's nobody there to grade him and groom him and guide him and guard him. He functions on his own instincts now. And this applies to us, to life after the law. See, the law was our tutor until Christ came. Now the law is written on our hearts. God's put his love in our hearts, his love for him and his love for others. And now we're called to walk in God's spirit. Paul says in verse 3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. In other words, legalism is a nanny religion. It's the ABCs of morality and ethics. See, the term elements, it means basics. The Old Testament law was an elementary version of right and wrong. But here's Paul's point. Legalism is for babies. Galatians, you're you're going backwards, he says. See, boundaries and rules are always easier than walking by faith. You see where you stand. Religious formulas are just formula compared to a true relationship with God. The Jewish false teachers in Galatia, they spoke of the Mosaic law as the path to true enlightenment. But Paul says, religion like this, this legalism is just kid stuff. It's infantile. It's look at me religion. No, we grow by grace through faith. See, for a time, God kept mankind under the law. But then verse 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice in the fullness of time. When history reached a crescendo, at a pre-planned moment, God sent forth his son. Roman peace and Jewish prophecy and God's sovereignty all combined to make it just the right time. And Jesus was born under the law. That means he lived up to its demands according to its rules and regulations. He became our sinless sacrifice and he redeemed us to God. He has even adopted us as sons. You know, I think it's wonderful that every adopted child has one great blessing. Come what may, you should always know you're wanted. You're wanted. If you're adopted, that means you're wanted. Adoptions never happen by accident. And since Jesus has adopted you, you know what that means? It means God loves you, friend. And it means that he wants you to be with him. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. God's adoptions are legal. He redeems us by satisfying our debts. He takes legal custody of us. But his adoptions are not just on paper. There's more to a divine adoption. For God puts his spirit in us so that the instinctive cry of our hearts is Abba or Daddy, Paul says. God creates a relational intimacy between us and him. It's wonderful to be adopted by God. Verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son than an heir of God through Christ. Did you know there's a shingle over the doorway in heaven that reads, God and sons? (laughs) We are heirs of his incredible blessings. Verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? I mean, this was Galatia's betrayal. The church had been made, was made up of previous pagans and former Jews. Both religions changed its adherence to impossible codes and laborious ceremonies. The grace of God was like a breath of fresh air, man. It was like a cup of cold water on a hot summer day. Why are you returning, Paul says, to these beggarly elements, this beggarly religion? See, they'd been to the mountaintop of grace. They were now God's kids. Why are they again stooping to worthless traditions? He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Why would you think a holy God could be satisfied by keeping festivals instead of having faith? It's faith that counts. Paul writes, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. If they continue down this path of legalism, he says, all that they've received will be negated. Understand, legalism is not benign. It's dangerous. You know, it's sad, but most pastors I know, they're quick to rebuke a person who carries his freedom too far, but they'll tolerate the legalist. That's a fatal mistake. I've heard it put, the more religious a man becomes, the further from God he gets. 
And that's true. And here Paul worries that the legalism of the Galatians is going to unravel everything that grace had weaved together. That his work in them is going to be in vain. He says in verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Paul had laid aside his Jewish legalism, which he was familiar with, and he had lived by faith like a Gentile believer. He'd sort of swapped places with the Galatians. Paul worshipped on Sundays, and he mowed his grass on the Sabbath. Oh, my. And he ate bacon at the men's prayer meeting with those brothers from Calvary Chapel. And he's now asking the Galatians to mimic his example. Live like you're free because you are. In verse 13, Paul begins a new thought. He says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. Remember when Paul and Barnabas landed on the Turkish coast, they didn't stay long. They left the tropics for the drier mountains of Galatia. And what motivated them to do that? He says it was a physical infirmity. And he recalls how the Galatians received him. He says, my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. The Galatians held Paul in high esteem. They treated him like a messenger of God, even though he suffered this illness. His infirmity didn't lessen their respect for him. He says, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And here's how much the Galatians had loved Paul in those days, those first days. They would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him if it were possible. And here's a clue as to the nature of Paul's illness. It was probably some sort of infectious eye disease. There's some folks who believe Paul contracted trachoma. That this was his thorn in the flesh that he spoke of back in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Perhaps the warm, humid, tropical climate had caused a flare-up of his condition. And it forced him to move to the cooler, drier highlands of Galatia. That's why he had come to them. Paul remembers the Galatians' sacrificial loyalty. They would have given me their eyes. But what had happened to their love? See, someone had turned them against Paul. For he says in verse 16, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but but for no good... Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. Paul is referring to these legalistic false teachers, the Judaizers. See, Paul spoke the truth. But these false teachers, they pampered more than pastored. They told people what they wanted to hear. There's a lot of that going around today. He says, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. And not only when I am present with you. Oh, the Galatians had stood up for grace when Paul was around. But once he had left town, they dropped their guard. And now he rebukes them. They need to be consistent. He says in verse 19, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul wanted to see these Galatians mature and exhibit the character of Christ. He says his soul labored with birth pangs. Like an expectant mom, Paul contracted with concern to see these Galatians grow in Christ. 
We should care for one another with such passion. He says, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. How sad. Paul's worried that these Galatians are going to get dragged back into legalism. He says, now tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And Paul is about to use an Old Testament story to teach a New Testament lesson. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, that is Hagar, the other by a free woman, that would be Sarah. You remember, Sarah was the gal who bought bikinis with her social security check. Remember Sarah? She was the ageless knockout. Hagar was the young maid that Abraham met in Egypt. And these two women became embroiled in a severe, serious rivalry. He says, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. I'm sure you remember the story. God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Sarah was 65 years old at the time. Abraham was even older. And at 65, God's promise seemed pretty far-fetched to Sarah. Then, when nothing happened for 25 years, and God still repeated the promise, a 90-year-old Sarah laughed. But it was shortly thereafter that God got the last laugh. For amazingly, at 90 years old, Sarah had the promised son. She named him Isaac. You remember what it means? Laughter. But that's just half the story. For in her darkest days of barrenness, Sarah grew weary. I mean, she was trying to have a kid. She grew weary of checking her temperature and counting the days on the calendar and rushing home from parties to do the deed because she might be ovulating and all the rest that ladies do. You know, the ancients had a shortcut around all this family planning. You could recruit a surrogate mom. Arrange a night. Let the husband have his jollies. And the baby that resulted went to the wife who tolerated it all. That's how and why Hagar gave birth to her son Ishmael. Now here's how Paul tells the story. Sarah had a son through promise. Isaac was the miracle baby, the result of the promise. It was God's work from start to finish Just like our salvation. Whereas Ishmael was born according to the flesh. You remember flesh is me. My efforts. My ingenuity. My abilities. Just like our efforts under the Jewish law. Verse 24. Which things are symbolic. In other words, this tale of two sons has spiritual implications. This is analogous, Paul says. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Hagar represented the legal code given to Moses on Mount Sinai which was later associated with another mountain, Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount, the heart of Judaism. 
So the system of relating to God that Paul opposed in Galatia, righteousness that depends on the law and works and flesh, is epitomized in Hagar and Ishmael. Yet to the contrary, Paul says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. The Jerusalem above is heaven. And this is where the power originated that impregnated Sarah from heaven. It's also where the power originates to save us. Heaven bestows favor freely, by grace, through faith, in the power of God's Spirit, which is exactly why we relate to God under the new covenant. So Hagar in earthly Jerusalem represented the law, while Sarah and the Jerusalem above represents grace. Verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Here he quotes Isaiah 54 verse 1. And it speaks of these two covenants as these two women. The covenant that starts out barren will produce many more children than the covenant that claims to be fertile. Which means in the end Sarah or Jerusalem above the new covenant produces many more offspring for God than Hagar or the Jerusalem below, which is the law of Moses. What relied on us was not nearly as fruitful as what we had no part in and relied completely on God. You understand what he's saying? Maybe. The point is, grace is more fruitful than law. In verse 28, Paul explains it. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. See, Abraham's foray into the, in the flesh resulted in friction at home. Still friction at home. This is the source of the Middle East conflict to this day. See, Hagar needled Sarah constantly. And after dig upon dig and insult after insult, Sarah had about all she could take from Hagar. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And here Paul quotes Genesis 21, Sarah's ultimatum. She said, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Sarah goes to Abraham one day and says, you got to deal with that gal. I'm tired of Hagar. These two women were going to be in conflict as long as they lived together. Honey, Hagar had to go. And the same is true of these two ways of relating to God. Friends, they're incompatible. It's either grace or law. It's either faith or works. You either trust in God's spirit or you rely on your own efforts. In other words, you can't push the bike and spin the bike at the same time. Thus Paul concludes, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Be a person who lives by faith rather than trusts in me. And if you're not such a person, it's time for you to shift gears.